0: It's Wednesday, February 23rd. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. The statewide mask mandate in schools may soon drop after a vote from the State Board of Education. Baltimore County Public Schools lays out a plan for when to lift their mandate. A federal judge ruled that the Baltimore County Council must redraw its redistricting map to reflect the diverse population. The same judge also sets a trial date for Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby. The Maryland House of Delegates moves one step closer to legalizing recreational use of cannabis. And today, our executive editor Danielle Irby steps from behind the scenes to kick off a series of conversations with Black women in medicine. It's The Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response, and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Maryland health officials are reporting the lowest number of COVID-19 hospitalizations in nearly four months. Just over 500 coronavirus patients are being treated in state hospitals. That's down by about 30 since yesterday. The statewide positivity rate also dropped to 2.87%. In Baltimore, the COVID positivity rate is 2.03%. That's the lowest among Maryland's counties. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott says he's meeting with Health Commissioner Dr. Letitia DeRaza to discuss the city's indoor mask mandate. The mayor says he'll decide on a timeline for any changes the city will make to its COVID protocols after the meeting. The Baltimore County Public Schools has a plan for when students and teachers can stop wearing masks in school buildings. WYPR's John Lee reports the mask optional date will be based on the rate of COVID transmission.
1: Mask can come off after the county has seen 14 consecutive days of moderate or low COVID transmission rates. School officials told the school board Tuesday night the county is very close to meeting that threshold and the 14-day clock could start ticking as early as this week. Board members, including Aaron Hager, rejected a proposal to make March 1st the masks optional date.
2: I feel like we're so close and we're following the science and that, again, makes me very proud of how we've handled all of this. And, you know, we can see the finish line and I I worry about kind of jumping ahead of it.
1: Even after masks become optional in the county schools, they still will have to be worn on school buses and in the nurse's office.
2: More
0: international flights are resuming as COVID-19 metrics improve. Air Canada says it will resume flights from BWI Airport to Toronto and Montreal this spring for the first time since March 2020. There will be two daily flights between BWI and Toronto starting May 15th and one daily flight between Baltimore and Montreal starting June 1st. Today, U.S. District Judge Lydia K. Grigsby set a trial date for Baltimore City State's attorney Marilyn Mosby. For charges of perjury and making false statements on loan applications to buy two homes in Florida. Emily Sullivan reports.
3: U.S. District Judge Lydia K. Grigsby set a trial date for May 2nd after she held a status conference with federal prosecutors and Mosby's lawyers. Prosecutors anticipate a four-day trial, according to documents they filed last week. Mosby's attorneys had asked the court for a trial date no later than April, pointing to the upcoming June primary election for her office. The incumbent Democrat has not officially filed for a third term. Two opponents have registered for the race. Mosby's lawyer, A. Scott Bolden, has said the charges are motivated by political and racial animus.
0: And in another decision from federal Judge Grigsby, Baltimore County must redraw its map for county council districts. The preliminary injunction, granted on Tuesday, strikes down the map approved by the county council in December.
1: The plaintiffs argued that map violated the Voting Rights Act because it only has one black majority district, even though the county is nearly 30 percent African-American. Six of Baltimore County's seven council members are white. Tony Fugate, one of the plaintiffs and the former head of the county NAACP, said while he's happy with the judge's decision, it's a sad day for Baltimore County because the council unanimously supported a map opposed by the black community.
4: It's just a sad day that we have a council that that really doesn't listen to and respect
1: people of color. Council Chairman Julian Jones, the council's sole black member, says the county's legal team is reviewing the opinion. The judge is giving the county until March 8th to redraw the map. John Lee, WIPR News.
0: Mayor Brandon Scott announced on Tuesday that he will divert $90 million in federal relief money to homelessness services. Emily Sullivan has more.
3: The city will spend $45 million to purchase and renovate two hotels, which will be operated as non-congregate emergency housing. They'll provide 275 beds to replace beds at shelters with group living. Mark Council, an organizer with Housing Our Neighbors, who was previously homeless, says the program will help prevent the spread of COVID-19 within the city's homeless population.
5: The only effective way that we can do this is to stay six feet apart. You cannot do that in conjugate living, especially if you have something like three, four hundred some more people in one place. We cannot be safe in the conjugate living shelters.
3: Mayor Scott declined to name the two hotels citing ongoing talks.
0: And Emily reports a new Baltimore City bill would ban firefighters from entering unoccupied, burning, vacant buildings. Councilwoman Danielle McCrae introduced the bill following the deaths of three firefighters who responded to a blaze at an empty, vacant home last month.
3: Councilwoman McRae's bill would prevent fire personnel from entering such buildings unless three conditions were met. There is a person inside, fire has consumed less than a quarter of the building, and safe entry into the building is possible. Although we cannot bring those we have lost back, As a council, we are in a position to abate
0: the grave consequences of future eras.
3: Her bill would also require firefighters to wear body cameras while responding to blazes. A BCFD spokeswoman said the agency was not consulted on the bill and that Fire Chief Niles Ford looks forward to robust conversation with the council. Emily Sullivan, WYPR News.
0: Maryland State Board of Education voted in favor of ending its statewide masking mandate Tuesday. The vote will need final approval from a joint legislative committee to take effect. The board voted 12-2 in favor of rescinding the mandate. The vote, if approved, would let local school systems decide whether they want to keep masking. State Superintendent Mohamed Chowdhury expressed support for ending the mandate Tuesday. Chowdhury pushed for the statewide mask mandate last year, and he said that if he could go back, he would do it again.
2: But the conditions are better. There's more testing. There's more vaccines that are readily available.
0: It's not yet clear when the vote will be discussed for final approval. The committee that would make the vote go into effect may be meeting in about two weeks. The vote, if approved, would also do away with off-ramps that are part of the current mandate. Maryland's off-ramps allow schools to stop masking if vaccination rates are at least 80 percent among either its eligible students and staff or within the county the school is located in. A school that doesn't have those rates could still end masking if its county has 14 consecutive days of moderate or low transmission based on CDC data. Tuesday's decision followed an hour of public comment. Kenneth Kyler, a board member of Carroll County Public Schools, said masks had a place earlier in the pandemic, but he also called for an end to the mandate.
4: It's time we accept that COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives. The best way to prevent COVID-19 in children who cannot be vaccinated is to surround them with vaccinating adults.
0: The board also heard from numerous parents, many of whom were opposed to masking. According to data presented at Tuesday's meeting, just over half of local school systems have teacher vaccination rates of at least 80%. Some are lagging behind. Dorchester County, for example, last reported a teacher vaccination rate of 49%. Only five local school systems require teachers to get vaccinated. Rachel McCusker, a teacher representative on the board, was one of the two board members who voted against ending the mandate. And I understand where parents are
2: coming from and the parents that have spoken, I hear you. I hear you. However, I also believe that I have a responsibility to be prudent. And I just feel like we're a couple
0: of weeks too early. McCusker said the board should wait until more counties reach moderate transmission and wait for the CDC to give the green light. The CDC is expected to update guidance on indoor masking in the coming weeks. I am concerned we're going to lose children
2: from the physical classrooms to either home and hospital teaching or to uh, a mass exit as to virtual programs.
0: Cheryl Boast is the president of the Maryland State Education Association, a union representing more than 76,000 educators. She urged the board not to lift the mandate and criticized Governor Larry Hogan for pressuring the board to do so, accusing him of using his bully pulpit to politicize public health. Boast said if the mandate were to be lifted, Students and families with higher levels of vulnerability to COVID
2: should be provided increased virtual schooling options. Educators must be provided with urgent paid health leave or alternative job placements if medically needed and paid
0: COVID leave for all employees. She added that several counties are already reaching their off-ramps as planned, but that not all counties are ready. Governor Hogan issued a statement shortly after the board's vote, saying it was a major step for normalcy. The state's COVID positivity rate dipped below 3 percent Tuesday for the first time since early November, according to state health data. The number of ICU patients is also the lowest it's been in six months. The House of Delegates gave preliminary approval today to a state constitutional amendment to legalize recreational marijuana for anyone over 21. And a bill that spells out the details, including requirements for studies, penalties for public use, and creating a cannabis business assistance fund. At the same time, Democrats beat back a series of Republican amendments. WYPR's Joel McCord has more.
4: Delegate Jason Buckle, the House Minority Leader, tried to amend the Constitutional Amendment to allow local governments and counties that vote against legalization in November to keep marijuana illegal in their jurisdictions. He argued that if Maryland is opting out of federal law in which marijuana is still illegal, counties ought to be able to opt out if Maryland legalizes it. We opt out. You don't get to opt out, even when it's based on the will of your voters. The will of your voters expressed in a Democratic referendum, don't want this, we're going to cram it down your throat. That's not fair. Delegate Luke Clippinger, the sponsor of the constitutional amendment and the accompanying bill, wondered what would happen if one county approved it and a neighboring county didn't. What if you lived near the border between those counties, he asked. It creates confusion. It puts more people at risk of of being incarcerated, and that is not what we're trying to do by offering this amendment to the voters. Buckle also moved to add jail time to the $50 penalty for violating the smoking and public provisions in the accompanying bill. He said he understands the effort to keep people from going to jail for using marijuana in a responsible fashion in their homes. I understand that, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is, this isn't a slap on the wrist, this is a tickle on the wrist. This is ridiculous. Delegate David Moon, a Montgomery County Democrat and vice chair of the Judiciary Committee, countered that part of the reason for legalizing marijuana is to get nonviolent crimes off the books and to get rid of the inequities between the arrests of whites and non-whites.
1: And so what the minority leader is proposing to do, both through his attempt to make this a local decision where people could keep perpetuating these inequities, And now, in this attempt to recriminalize, it's the opposite of what we're trying to do.
4: Delegate Nick Kipke, an Anne Arundel County Republican, proposed an amendment that would require food products that contain cannabis to be packaged in child-proof containers and forbid them to be marketed to children as candy or snack foods.
1: Throughout our country, there is a very sad and growing problem uh, with children getting into their parents' edibles. And it's brought light to the problem of marijuana
4: overdose. But Delegate Joselina Peña-Melnick said his amendment was unnecessary. She said the bill creates an advisory commission to study and make recommendations on advertising, labeling, and quality control requirements. And the regulations on medical cannabis are stronger than Kipke's amendment.
3: They require child-resistant packaging consistent with federal poison prevention, so it's not Childproof, that is not the correct wording, is child-resistant packaging. They prohibit advertising near schools and daycares. They prohibit products that look like food or beverage products. They prohibit animal or human shapes, only circles and squares. They can't market to or target kids.
4: The amendments were all defeated on near-party line votes. Meanwhile, the Senate bill, a more expansive state constitutional amendment that includes many elements of the House bill and more, is scheduled for a hearing next week. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News.
0: Today, in Conversations with Black Women in Medicine, Executive Editor Danielle Irby speaks with Deneen Richmond, the new president of Luminous Health Doctors Community Medical Center. Richmond has been in leading roles in healthcare management for two decades. She earned her bachelor's degree in nursing from the University of the District of Columbia and holds a master's degree in healthcare administration from the George Washington University, where she's also an adjunct professor. Richmond has also been recognized as a distinguished
2: healthcare leader. Deneen Richmond, welcome, my friend, and congratulations on your ascension to president of Luminous Health.
5: Thank you, Danielle. I'm so honored to have this
2: opportunity
5: to chat with you this
2: afternoon. The honor is all mine. So I know it probably does not feel like a meteoric rise to you, but you were appointed acting president in September of 2020. And then I feel like I blinked and you were selected as president in November of 2020. So can you take us into a day in your life in this role and the uh, health system you're leading? Yes.
5: So every day here at Luminous Health Doctors Community Medical Center is, is different. Um, but first, I just want to start off by saying that it I am honored um, to even have this opportunity um, to lead a medical center in my community. And I say that because while I was born in Washington, D.C., I've pretty much lived almost my entire life and where I continue to live here in Prince George's County. And this is the first time I've ever long healthcare career, but the first time that I've actually had an opportunity um, to work and give back um, to the community I call home. So my focus um, is really, I would say, twofold. Um, One, it's making sure that within the four walls, that I'm giving people the resources, the tools, the training and everything that they need so that we can provide the best care to our community. In fact, our mission at Luminous Health is to enhance the lives of the people and community we serve. So that first and foremost um, is where I focus. The second part is that I try to focus and make sure that I'm doing something every single day to address the community. Uh, So we spend a lot of time um, learning our community, partnering um, with our community, understanding our community's needs. And of course, in the most recent time period, those needs have been very significantly focused around COVID. Um, But there's lots of other needs, but obviously, as I think everybody knows with this pandemic, that has kind of consumed everyone's life. life. And so- We've been in the community really making sure we can meet those those needs and given vaccines. I think we're over 77,000 in Prince George's County alone at providing education, um, testing sites, and a number of other things to make sure that our community is taken care of.
2: So, you know, I want to piggyback on that. I'm glad you raised that. Uh, as our host, Sarah, stated in the introduction I'm having conversations with black women in medicine uh, this month to not only hear about their journey, but also to discuss some of the crucial health needs in black communities across the country. And, you know, as you said, particularly in Maryland and uh, initiatives in medicine to address them. And I understand that uh, Luminous is doing something quite bold in this space under the rubric of anti-racism. So can you talk about that? Yes,
5: uh, that is something that we are focusing on every single day. So uh, last year, um, we formed what we call our HEART Force. And HEART stands for Health Equity and Anti-Racism Task Force. And so we just reduce it to HEART Force for short. And we engaged with um, our leaders on our boards Um, leaders within the organization, leaders in the community, faith-based, and other community leaders um, to really establish what actions, and I really want to emphasize that word actions, um, that we could take to address health equity and anti-racism. Lots and lots of organizations have issued all types of statements, and those statements are great. It's nice to know that there's some allyship there, but we won't change things and we'll be having the same conversation over and over again if we aren't deliberate and taking actions. So we, as part of the recommendations of our heart force that were adopted um, in June of last year, have really identified um, 10 key areas where we're going to focus. And I'm not going to talk about all of them. But I, if, you, if it's OK with you, I want to just mention two as examples. Yeah, please do. Okay, so one area that we're focusing in is our workforce, and there's been lots of studies um, that have been released that talk about the underrepresentation of Blacks, Latino, and Native American people in the healthcare workforce. So, for example, if you look at just the the Black population, it's about twelve, a little over twelve percent of the of the workforce. In the way that this study defined those who, you know, were in the age range, seeking employment, et cetera. Um, But when they looked across 10 health professions, everything from physical therapists to respiratory therapists, to nurses, to doctors, in some cases we were only represented about 3% of the time. So that is a huge disparity. So we really are focused on making sure that people have a seat at the table. So we adopted several years ago a requirement Um, that for every leadership position that we have a diverse candidate in the finalist pool. And what that means is that, you know, this is not about, you know, a quota or anything like that. It's about, it's forcing us to source for our positions in such a way that we are identifying highly qualified diverse applicants and making sure that we are including them and being inclusive in our interview process. And by doing that, we have just significantly increased the diversity
2: of our leadership team um, here at Luminous Health. I just want to interject, that sounds time-consuming and it sounds like, you know, a full force effort. You don't just get to that or achieve that by happenstance.
5: No, it it is a very deliberate effort but I would say it's really not that time consuming because what we find is that if we recruit in different ways, if we share our job announcements um, with professional organizations where um, diverse leaders belong, mm-hmm. um, if we you know, if we reach out to HBCU, so there's a lot of subtle, um, easy things I'm going to tell you that that organizations can do. Um, that will dramatically expose them um, to a more diverse um, pool of applicants. And as such, you know, it's a win-win because we know that when our workforce is more reflective of the population that we serve, that we end up having better outcomes. It makes for a, a diverse workforce, makes for um, a better work culture. And I'm sure so there's lots of benefits to it.
2: Mhm mhm. Now, the topic of mental health, which is something you and I have talked about offline in our conversations, seems to have been getting a lot of public discussion over the past two years in particular. The pandemic has certainly brought greater attention to it. Uh, you have elite athletes such as Simone Biles speaking out, and uh, then the recent tragic suicide of Chesley Christ, the former Miss USA, who was just 30 years old. Yet it's a topic not always spoken about openly in Black families and in Black communities. So can you tell us about the literal recent groundbreaking for facility to address this right in our backyard in Prince George's County.
5: Absolutely. So, yes, this is an issue. And, and and I am glad that it is more in the forefront now so that we're talking about it, that we're helping people to understand that there's not a stigma. You know, no one worries about, you know, um, I need something to take care of my physical health. While well, mental health is just as important and in our environment, in our community, um, we know that there are not enough mental health providers. We know that many people, over half of the behavioral health admissions, are actually having to go to out-of-county hospitals. There's been um, um, increases in suicide, as you mentioned, both locally as well as nationally. Um, so we know that there are huge needs related to behavioral health. So we are, as you mentioned, had a recent groundbreaking. So in April of, of last year, we with support from the county. So I'm very appreciative for our county executive. Angela also works in the county council um, who um, gave us a $20 million capital grant that's going towards a complete renovation of an existing building on our campus that was not being used. And we're turning it into a state-of-the-art behavior health facility. So it's a two-story building, about 32,000 square feet, The first floor is going to have a continuum of outpatient services including an outpatient mental health clinic walk-in urgent care so just like you can go to an urgent care center for if you break an arm or Mm -hmm. you're you know any we we have those urgent care services available for mental health and substance use issues um, psychiatric day programs and a residential crisis program for substance use disorders and all of those services we anticipate having opened by summer of this year. So just a few short months from now. Right, that's soon. Yes, very soon. And then the second floor um, in in late September, we received approval for our certificate of need from the state that's going to allow us to open a 16-bed adult inpatient psychiatric unit and that we expect, expect to have opened by December of this year. So these two um, services, the Continuum of Outpatient Services and the Inpatient Psychiatric Unit, are going to greatly expand access to quality behavior healthcare services um, here in Maryland and specifically here in Prince George's County. So I'm very proud of the fact that we are preparing to meet that need that I think we all understand um, is so important nowadays.
2: Absolutely. And uh, you know the saying, if I can see it, I can be it. So what, in your opinion, are young girls and boys, especially Black little girls, not seeing enough of when it comes to opportunities in science and medicine? And how different is it now than your formative years going back to elementary school? You know,
5: the the sad thing I would say is that we haven't made enough progress. And so we have so many opportunities for our young girls of color, for black girls to understand the array of opportunities that are available to them in STEM careers. And it's really endless. You know, it's not just doctors and nurses and oh yes, they're so important. But as I was talking about that study, it's respiratory therapists, it's physical therapists. It's all types of roles that we have in healthcare. And we know that outcomes will will change and be better when once again, we have that diversity in our workforce. So I believe that we have to reach all the way back to elementary school and really even at that early age. So one, making sure that our schools have robust science and math um, curriculums, two, that those who are in professions like mine um, are interacting with them and helping them to understand what those possibilities are that they can consider and giving them opportunities to have exposure to it. And then we need to also make sure that we're partnering on the higher education side Um, So that as people then are in those degree programs and there's some of these fields, it's a range, right? Some of these are are professionals that you can have an associate's degree and some of them require postgraduate training. So it's everything in between. But we need to make sure that we're providing them those educational training opportunities. And once again, really reaching out to them as part of the hiring process. And then when they do get to um, join our organizations, really making sure that we're providing that um, career development and professional development so that they can continue on. We're doing some great work right now where we're hiring LPNs, which traditionally have only hired in nursing homes, but there are so many things that they can do within their scope of practice in a hospital. And many of the ones we're hiring, they also are taking advantage of our tuition assistance program and actually going back to school and working on their RN, their registered nurse degrees. Mm -hmm. Those are just examples of the types of things that we need to do to change these statistics that should not look the way they do in 2022.
2: You know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, nurses, because I know uh, that's your background. You didn't start off as a hospital executive. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your early personal journey to get to where you are now yes so you're
5: exactly right i i always say i'm a once a nurse always a nurse even though i know my limitations of taking care of people (laughs) Uh, but you don't lose those skills so yes i started off on the clinical side obtaining my bachelor's of science in nursing from the university of the district of columbia and then i went on to um, and worked in that field for a while while i was also working i mean excuse me going to school part-time working on my master's in health administration at George Washington University. And so I will tell you that those two kind of skill sets and backgrounds combined, I think really helped to propel and have continued to propel my career in healthcare. So I've been able to work in so many different types of settings, everything from a federally qualified community health center to national organizations like the National Committee of the Quality Assurance to now running a hospital and i guess what i would share with people is you know regardless of what your journey looks like and we all need to recognize that our journey is our journey so so many people look at well you know i need to check this box and check that box but there's so many different ways and pathways to obtain your goals and i think we all have to focus on those transferable skills so leadership skills can be applied in so many different ways. I was applying those leadership skills when I was taking care of one patient at a time, and now I can apply those skills in a different way, um, running a community hospital. But there's, it's, it's, um, it's very rewarding for me that I've been given these opportunities to be able to um, move in these circles and have these the, the career options that I've had, and I'm so committed to doing my part to make sure that others um, can have similar types of opportunities.
2: That's great. And as a footnote, uh, as we wind down, since it is Black History Month, I'm sure a lot of people don't know, uh, weren't you the first to integrate either your junior high school or elementary school?
5: Yes. So, yes, I um, was in, let's see, was second or third grade. Um, It wasn't the fondest memories that I have, but I was living here in Prince George's County um, and was in elementary school at the time that um, mandatory busing was implemented for um, desegregation. Um, And so, yes, I had to leave my neighborhood school um, where I was able to walk to school and was bused some um, miles away and it was not a pleasant experience. Um, You know, as I have shared with people, you know, as a child, um, you know, I was subject to what I now know is racism. You know, parents meeting our school buses when they pulled up and, you know, yelling nasty things and calling us names and just treating us bad, even some of the teachers and others, um, because now we were in, you know, quote unquote, their school. Um, so I'm fortunate that I had parents um, that supported me, that, you know helped to fight some of those battles that we had to, um, and just you know, constantly gave us and gave me affirmation um, of what my worth was and what I was capable of doing. Um, and so yes, while that was not a pleasant experience, um, it's one that, you know, having that exposure early on, Kind of taught me a little bit about what this world is like and just really made me more determined than ever um, to overcome those stereotypes and those labels that were being inappropriately put on us.
2: Right. Well, you are definitely a testament to the philosophy that out of struggle comes great triumph. So, uh, Deneen Richman, President, Luminous Health Doctors Community Medical Center, it has been my pleasure to catch up with you, and thank you for taking the time out for The Daily Dose.
5: Thank you. So appreciate it.
2: We'll continue our conversations
0: with Black women in medicine on Friday's podcast. We're always happy to hear from you and we'll be here for you again on Friday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan and Callan Hansel suddeh Our Digital Content Director is Jamila Kremple and our General Manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The Executive Editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.